Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing, Episode 262, Jeff Salyards, Veil of the Deserters. Hey everybody, thanks for listening to Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing. I'm your host, Timothy C. Ward. Before we get into our interview with Jeff, I just wanted to mention the giveaways that we have going this week. We are stacked. Man. Okay, so Monday we posted a an excerpt of Echo Burning by Danny Ware. Uh, that's through Titan Books. It, her series is described as The Matrix meets Game of, the, uh, Game of Thrones. Sounds pretty cool. So we have an excerpt of that, and we also have three copies of Echo Burning, uh, which is the second book in the series. The first one is Echo Rising. The next giveaway is Jeff's books, Scourge of the Betrayer and Veil of the Deserters, books one and two of his Blood Sounders arc. Uh, we're going to have three sets of those to give away. And we also have Ryurik Davidson's Unwrapped Sky, which is an epic fantasy from Tor. We will post an interview with him on Wednesday. Um, due to where he lives, it was better for us to do a written one. Um, but still very cool stuff. Uh, if you think minotaurs are cool, um, you want a diverse fantasy world, um, his book sounds really cool. I mean, his name is Ryurik. Th- that alone makes me want to read his book. Um, so anyway, we have three of Ryurik's Unwrapped Sky, three of the Blood Sounders arc, and three Echo Burning, all to our newsletter subscribers. Sorry, again, this is just U.S. and Canada. Um, subscribe by next Monday by midnight central time, and everyone on the list by that time will go into the drawing. Uh, I'm still sending out emails for the giveaways that we have um, because we're getting multiple books. I'm giving people a choice, and so after I send out an email, I have to wait for them to get back to me, and then after they choose, then I can send out some more. Um, So you may still have won some of the books in the previous entries. Um, Anyway, lots lots of books to go around. I'm very excited for that. We will have a review of Veil of the Deserters up on Tuesday after our SF book releases this week post. I'm very close to releasing my Hugh Howey fan fiction uh, novelette in his Sand universe. Um, I could probably have it ready in the next few days, but I might give it till next Tuesday just to let it sit and look at it one more time before I submit. All right, folks, enjoy the show. Thank you for listening to Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing. I'm your host, Timothy C. Ward. I am so pleased to have Moses on the show today for our interview. Say hi, Moses. Hey, everybody. And our special guest today is Jeff Salyards. Hey, special guest. Wow. Yes. Yeah, you're very, very special. Like, uh, which episode is this, Tim? 262. Yeah, you're, you're one of 262. Oh, well, that does make me feel pretty special. That's good. <laughs> It is awesome to have you on the show, though. It's great. I'm glad to be here. So Jeff is the author of Scourge of the Betrayer and recently released from Nightshade Books, Veil of the Deserters. Um, 
Moses wanted to get on the show, um, you know, because he's, he's been busy with his other podcast and his... Uh, oh, oh <laughs> come on now. Come on now. I, uh, no, I actually really want to get back and do more interviews because it's just a lot of fun. And uh, it's cool to have Jeff on the show. Um, I, I, Jeff, you have... I read a story, I think it was probably on Facebook recently. You were talking about your um, author photo, mm-hmm. right? Which, if you guys haven't seen Jeff's author photo, he's got this fantastic sort of bald-headed, serious, epic, fantasy sort of author <laughs> author photo, right? And uh, But you have yeah. a really good, you have a great story about how that photo was actually taken, so I would love to hear it from the horse's mouth, so to speak. <laughs> sure, absolutely. Well, this uh, the, the first photo I took, I was doing a session with um, an amateur photographer here at, at my job, the ABA, and um, he does a lot of photo shoots for various folks, and... So we went outside, and it was a really beautiful day, gorgeous. Everything was lined up. And because it was my first book and because I was pretty excited, I just had this terrible, awful, uh, goofy grin on my face the entire time. I just couldn't push it <laughs> off. It was, I was just so excited to be taking an author photo. I mean, it just seemed unreal. And he, he kept asking, now, this is a pretty kind of dark and gritty book, right? You don't want to look like, you know, kind of a doof. So, so maybe you might want to think about something a little less happy. And it wasn't really working. I, I just I think that made me laugh even more. And so <laughs> he just started saying things like, you know, you, you might want to think about uh, baby seals being beaten, or the apocalypse, or famine, or you know, typhoid Mary, or and he just kept throwing out all these things. And eventually, um, it, it worked enough that my my smile disappeared for at least a hot minute. And he snapped about five photos, and one of them is the one that uh, ultimately he chose. Wow. And it does make me look like a third-rate hitman, but you know that's okay. That's all right. <laughs> so that that that's the look of baby seals being clubbed. <laughs> it is. I was trying desperately <laughs> not to laugh. So that's a great photo. <laughs> Thanks. So Jeff, for those who haven't heard about your series, why don't you give us a little bit of an introduction to um, kind of the setup of with the first book and some of the main characters. Okay, sure. Um, well, I, I mentioned this on a post not too long ago uh, as well. Um, years ago, I was reading uh, the Chronicles of Froissart, which is this uh, medieval um, treatise written during during the Hundred Years' War, and it was uh, about this chronicler who was accompanying a bunch of knights as they traipsed around and got into various different engagements, uh, usually in France, but sometimes in Scotland and other places. And it was it was really fascinating to me. I've always loved the Middle Ages. I've always loved that period. And I sort of filed it away and thought to myself that if I ever wrote a fantasy novel, and uh, that would be kind of maybe the inception there, would be to have sort of an embedded journalist who had the, uh, fulfilled the same sort of function uh, going along with the, the company recording their exploits and, and whatnot. And I, I thought, though, that one of the key differences would be it, this wouldn't be a nobleman who was um, voluntarily uh, kind of had joined up knowing what he was getting himself into. It would be a really young scribe who up until that point had only recorded uh, kind of life histories of really boring merchants. And so this this group of uh, hardened soldiers shows up and invites him to join them and, and to go along with them. And, and he doesn't really know what he's getting into at all, but he sort of... Um, He's so desperate for some adventure in his life, he agrees. And that was sort of the, the main thrust of the idea, was that Archie, who's this um, 
chronicler, agrees to join the Sildoon Company, and is led by Captain uh, Kilcoin, Raylar Kilcoin, is the commander. And he doesn't know what he's gotten himself into. He doesn't know what's going to happen exactly. He just knows he's going to be doing a little traveling, and that's pretty much it. And as Scourge, the betrayer, unfolds, uh, he learns very slowly that the company is involved in a lot of political intrigue, and they're doing a lot of uh, sneaky, underhanded business in this this other region. And he, throughout the book, he's his moral compass is pretty much threatened and challenged as he tries to come to grips with what he's actually gotten himself into and who who he's actually accompanying. And he's just way out of his his depth and his element. And so that's sort of the the heart of the story is. Uh, it's it's fairly realistic, especially in, in the first book. Um, it's it's there's some magic, but it's more on the periphery, and so mostly it's just about him and this company and him trying to figure out what the heck is going on. And then the second book takes off right where the first one ends, and that's where the uh, the aperture kind of widens and, the, and more of the world building kind of comes into place. So that's the long winded answer to your short question. Okay, and then the second one, Veil of the Deserters. So that's the one that has the veil with like all the people who just eat dessert all the time, right? <laughs> yep, that's it. That's okay. it, absolutely. Okay, that's what I thought. You don't know how many times my kids have uh, asked me about that, you know, the dessert and, and what, what they're eating and what, <laughs> uh, what kind of dessert is it. So that, that comes up frequently in my house. I just finished the um, Veil of the Deserters and... I'm really impressed with the series. We we've already chatted on on Goodreads, so um, yes, for those who haven't read this stuff, um, I think Jeff's one of the best out there, and I think that uh, as I as I said in my review that will be posted next week, I will um, stake my reputation as a reviewer on the quality of this series. And one of the things that I really liked about the series as it develops is this theme and this kind of dark theme of Arky realizing that the more he tries to show mercy, the worse things tend to get. Um, and I'm just curious, from your point of view writing the story, why is this kind of an ideal theme to address? Why do you think you gravitated toward that? And, and what, what's it like writing a series like this? Well, it, it is, uh, yeah, that's a pretty dark theme. <laughs> and I, I think the, you know, stories are always about conflict and or should be if, they're, if you want them to be interesting. It's, it's about something bumping up against something else, two trajectories, and what results when things um, conflict. And, and so I, I think the heart there is that Arky is, tries to do good things. He's, he's really the moral conscience of, of the storyline, and he really... Um, as he, he's traveling with this group, more and more he, he gets to realize that they're a bunch of brutal pragmatists. They're really uh, hardened soldiers, uh, professionals, and um, so with that that territory comes a lot of um, you know really unpleasant things that happen along the way. And it, it's him trying to come to grips with that and to um, wrestle with, with what is the right thing to do. And, and without spoiling anything for anybody who's going to read it, you're absolutely right. A couple of times he sort of pleads with Captain Kilcoin um, to do something somewhat merciful, and it does end up uh, ultimately, without again spoiling anything, um, causing some havoc and, and some and backfires. And so I think that's something that he's very, fairly young, and so I think it's 
certainly not a coming of age story necessarily, but I think it's him coming to grips with reality as well, his reality anyway, that, that not everything is going to turn out nicely just because you want it to, or you try and do the right thing. And sometimes it does uh, blow up in your face and what that means, you know, do you continue to try and do the right thing going forward? Do you just acquiesce to these awful things that have happened and accept them? Do you, you know, he's, that's him throughout the stories. Uh, that's his, his battle, I guess, his personal kind of conflict is um, how to, how to handle that. So this is kind of a nosy question here, Jeff, so feel free to not answer it. But, you know, as you look at where the series ultimately goes, can you say uh, how 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 black and how white, how dark, how gray is your ultimate um, point of view, you know, that you tell through this story? Like, what have you come to maybe that you want to eventually express? And maybe that's too much of a spoiler or something. So I just I just throw that to you to answer as you wish. Uh, I can answer that without, I think, spoiling anything too much. And if I do, I'm sure uh, you'll just edit the heck out of it. Um, <laughs> I think, for me, I've always gravitated to stories where there's they're complex and there's some layers to them. And it doesn't necessarily have to be... I mean, that's one thing everyone talks about uh, of late, anyway, is, is the whole grimdark movement and what what goes too far how far is too much um you know what when does it become nihilistic or just completely um overwhelming in its kind of bleakness and and what does that mean if you write a story like that and and uh so that's that that is something i've considered something i've thought about as i've as i've written this and and there are certainly some pretty dark things that happen in, in both books um and i think ultimately i try to show even the characters that might normally be painted as villains, uh, they, they have justification for doing some of what they do. And the quote-unquote heroes of the story, the, the protagonists, most of them, uh, the soldiers in the company especially, um, you know, they're pretty rough. They, they do very questionable things. Um, but I think I was trying to show as often as possible anyway that there's, there is some complexity that you'll find while in the real world, sure, there are, there are absolute you know, evil <laughs> folks, and there's certainly some really selfless people, but I think most people uh, often are somewhere in the middle of that spectrum, and that's, you know, they're, I don't know if gray is the right word, but certainly, you know, complicated, and sometimes do really horrible things uh, that people that you, you respect suddenly discover something about them that, that's pretty awful, and people that um, have done pretty awful things suddenly are able to kind of, um, if not find retribution or, or change their direction at least you know there, there's different sides to everyone so i think just in terms of the story i think that's um something i try to show is archie really um kind of coming to grips with that and, and realizing that it, it's the world is is complicated and and even when you think you're making necessarily the best choice in the moment um it's it's going to have implications beyond what you're just doing right there so I don't know if that answers the question or not. I, I think um, I, I might be risking spoilers if I got too much further into it, but um, right. there's, it, it's, there's a lot of gray. There's a lot of gray. That's good. That's good. Thank you. Mm-hmm. As I was preparing for this interview, Jeff, I've struggled because some of the best parts about your series are things that people sh- just need to experience. Um, for one, it's the dialogue that is both humorous and witty and uh, really drives forward the reading experience. I, I'm not even sure. I was reading through your blog and I saw you've got some some tips there about reading it out loud. And um, so, th- I mean, there's not really much we can talk about that, but 
I don't know if there's anything you want to add. Do you do you read your dialogue with your wife or your kids? <laughs> Definitely not my kids. <laughs> it's not G-rated. Um, <laughs> I, I do read it out loud to myself sometimes, um, and I think that's one thing that I found anyway is that even when you you have this great line that looks great on the page, and you think, "Wow, I nailed it. That's perfect." And sometimes if you don't read it out loud you won't catch that there's something really awkward or clunky about it, or you won't catch that there's that it could be a better way to express it. And that stuff that's on the page, and of course when you're reading as the reader, that's you're not reading it out loud, you're not hearing it, it's not theater, but I think that, that background of, of having been in, in theater and taken some playwriting courses, just kind of, uh, it, you help fine-tune your, your dialogue if you do read it out loud, and you do catch when something's really, you know, for instance, if, if you have a line that goes on for a paragraph uh, spoken, it's supposed to be spoken dialogue, and you, it looks great as you read it. It's very literary. It's it's wonderful. It's nuanced, et cetera. But you read it out loud, and you realize nobody could possibly say that in one breath. <laughs> right. And, you know, it's it's the sort of thing, or somebody would have interrupted there, or whatever. You, you recognize that there are problems with it as you hear it, as opposed to just read it. And so, I, you know, I don't know if there's too much more to add to that either, but I think that is really helpful for me. And I don't do it all the time, but I do try and do it kind of a spot check, especially if, especially if it's something I'm not really certain about. If it's doesn't, if I'm not positive, it is great. But even those that those lines where I feel pretty good about them, I think it's it's still a good uh, way just to catch things that could be better. And so um, I think that's one thing. I think um, another thing I mentioned on the blog is. And this this comes from the playwriting class I took ages ago, <laughs> more more years ago than I like to think about. Um, the the professor said that if if you cover up the names of the characters and just read the dialogue itself, and you don't know for sure who's speaking, if you can't almost immediately recognize just by kind of the pattern of the of the dialogue, the word choice, the vocabulary, the um, rhythm, et cetera. If you can't recognize immediately who's speaking just by the dialogue itself, it's probably not distinct enough. If everyone starts to blur together, you can improve that. And so I think that's one thing I've always tried and focus on is, is really work hard to make every character um, distinct and, and that you can distinguish them from each other and that they all have their kind of idiosyncrasies and uh, that they do sound different on the page and out loud and I think that's certainly, um, for me anyway, that was a helpful, helpful lesson. Yeah, that's, that's really good advice about dialogue. And um, I think that's kind of neat because it, it shows that, you know, that you're, you're working to improve your writing on, on, on all these levels uh, that we have to work on improving our writing on. And, and that's definitely been the uh, consensus about this new book I've noticed is uh, everyone feels like it's a, it's a step forward for you as a, as a writer. This is your second published novel, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it def- definitely seems to be, you know, the word on the street. I, I read a five-star five-star review from Bookworm Blues, Sarah Chorn, earlier today on Amazon for you. And and uh, she said that she was really, you know, very pleasantly surprised with the new book. Um, so congratulations on obviously working hard at this book and producing, you know, something that's a step forward for you as a writer. Well, thank you. I really appreciate that. I mean, I... I think that should always be the goal, right? You know, that you're, you're constantly trying to improve and each book should be better than, better than last. So it, it's, it is definitely rewarding <laughs> when people respond that way. Um, I mean, I, I think it's, it's, it is a step forward. I feel like it, it is a better book than the first one. Uh, it's definitely, 
I feel better about it overall. So it's it's nice to get that feedback. Um, feels good. So thank you. I appreciate that. That kind of went with one of my questions about what you tried to do better in the second book. Well, there, I, I would say a lot of things. <laughs> um, I mean, I don't want to go on for you know two hours on this answering this one question because the backstory of the first book is is really long and kind of tedious. But at one point, the manuscript was a good seventy thousand words longer than what it ended up being when I when I submitted it to Nightshade and. A lot of that was backstory, uh, a Braylar's backstory in particular, that he narrates to Archie, and Archie asks questions as they go along. And so that was all interspersed with, with the book that is Scourge of the Betrayer originally. And it was, the pacing was all off, and I think um, it, it did slow things down a little too much, and there were a lot of issues with it. Anyway, I think that was one thing I certainly tried to do better in this book, is to uh, change the pace up as you go so that you know, you don't have three talkie scenes in a row and you don't have 50 pages of a battle scene that go on forever. So the people that even like that sort of thing are, you know, exhausted by the end and ready to put the book down. I mean, I think having some kind of uh, changes in the rhythm and, the, and um, the pacing of the book, I think that's one thing I definitely tried to improve on. Um, just naturally, I, Tim, you and I have talked about this before offline. Um, just the, the goal was always to have because Arky, when he joins the company, he's not really respected or trusted or um, he's just sort of tagging along. And a lot of the company doesn't necessarily like him <laughs> or want him there. And so they're not very revealing about anything to him, the, the agenda of the company, any of their backstories, um, anything really. They're really reticent. And I think the whole goal was that he has to sort of prove himself. And by the end of the first book and going into the second book, he does by doing a few different things. And so he gradually does get to have more access to what the storyline is that's driving that, that group. And so I think that was always the goal. And I know that that sort of frustrated some people in the first book was they felt like I, I kept my cards too close to my chest and I didn't reveal as much early on. And because the, arc, uh, narr the, the narrator, Archie, is so in the dark, so is the reader through most of the first book. And I can see why that was sort of frustrating. That was a conscious choice, whether or not it worked, you know, that's, each reader to decide, but I, I can see where some readers might have felt like uh, that didn't work for them. And so the second book, um, it was going to naturally happen anyway, but I think that's one thing I certainly wanted to be conscious of as I went along was when Archie gets more and more trusted, what he's more and more privy to, and the information that gets delivered to him, and the, the stuff that he's allowed to witness and record grows. And so the, he gets to understand much more of what's happening. And so there's you get a lot more um, just information uh, as, a, as a reader in terms of um, what's driving them, what they're about, how they're defined, who they are. And so I think that's something that just some people were sort of hungry for, was a little more world building, a little more character information, a little more of the plot line. Uh, all those things sort of um, widen as, as you go into the second book. And so that was at, uh, certainly at the forefront of what I was trying to do was uh, make sure I kind of handle that the right way and get that across. It's an interesting, um, I think it's an ambitious premise to start with, you know, the whole book, your first book, right. And, and throughout, through the series, Arky is telling his account of events. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. He's yeah. Recording everything pretty much as it happens. So, yeah. So the, so the second and third book as well. Right. And, yeah. um, 
which is it just I think it's a it's a it's an ambitious but very cool thing to attempt. And I think naturally the hard thing is when that character is describing things, right? You know, how how close does the reader get into, you know, the point of view of the action? And I'm sure you've learned a lot about how to do that, <laughs> you know, in, in writing the, these books. I'm sure you've you've made, you know, you, you've improved, and I'm sure you made mistakes. We all do when we try something ambitious, right? I mean, I, I my first book has plenty of point of view characters. Let me tell you, but <laughs> you know, so what what have, what have you learned about, uh, um, you know, how to how to tell a story from the point of view of of a scribe? Well, I, I think that's a great question. I think. Um, Definitely a lot <laughs> I've learned. Uh, you know, the, the first book, I don't know that I had the balance quite right. I, I always felt, even after it was out there and when people started reading it, uh, you know, it's too late to turn the clock back and change it, but I always felt like there were things I kind of wished I'd done a little differently. And so uh, this book, I tried to take some of those those um, lessons and going forward to really do a better job of balancing it. Because on the one hand, when you've got a narrator, it's first person, and not everybody likes first person, you know, out right out of the gate. So that's one thing that um, you've you got to be aware of as, as you're writing is that it's it's everything that's funneled through him, all the information, what he decides to record, what he chooses to put down, because he's right in the mix of it, it's, um, you know, as you put yourself in the mind of this character, this narrator, what sort of things would stand out to him? What sort of things are sort of commonplace that he wouldn't bother to record? And trying to figure out the right balance of those details that, that can bring the and, and really include the, their readers and draw them in, as opposed to um, kind of deflecting them or, or keeping them at bay. And so I think that the second book, I I, I think I did a better job. <laughs> I'm not entirely sure yet. It's just out. But no, um, you did. I, you I did. Everybody it. everybody says you did. So we're gonna say you did. <laughs> oh, okay, thanks. I'll, I'll run with that. I, I did a better job of. Um, really maintaining that balance and figuring out when kind of to grease the wheels a little bit more for Archie to reveal a little bit more here, a little bit more there without being an info dump. And I think that's, that's always the really tricky thing when you've got a first person narrator, especially in fantasy, because so much of the world, you know, is, is you're delivering it through this one person's focus and it can get really info dumpy if you stop to, you know, catalog 20 different things on this, you know, five pages about the world well, somebody who's right living that world and, and, and watching it, witnessing it, involved in it, probably wouldn't take the time to record a lot of those things, you know? So I think mm. finding the right balance and just in terms of avoiding the info dumps, but giving enough clues, enough details to really um, immerse the reader and draw them in, I, I think that is tricky. And so I feel like um, that's definitely something I sort of improved on in the second book. Do you find yourself going more into um, Arky's direct experience, sort of like where the point of view almost becomes where you're in there experiencing what he's going through? Or um... Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think, um, again, because he's wrestling with everything. He's so um, kind of floating like flotsam a lot of the time and trying just to catch up and figure out what to make of what's going on here. So it's a lot of it is his, um, you know, kind of internal monologue um, as as he's just kind of witnessing and, 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 and also participating. And I think that's something that he does more, too, in the second book, because I wanted to give him kind of a little more agency and give him more to do, basically. So he's not just a, a passive, um, per, you know, the, just along for the ride, but that he's actually involved in the story a little bit more. And so um, 
definitely tried to pay attention to that and and to uh, what when he when to give him kind of rope to go on and talk or, or write about what's what's going through his head and when to pull the focus out and focus more on what's happening with the actual you know events around him. So I think not that I did a terrible job of the first book on that, but I think I did improve that as well uh, on this one. So that's one thing I was um, certainly trying to take care of on this one. Yeah, definitely not terrible at all. Um, in, in the second book, I really liked how Arky, uh, he's starting to use the crossbow. Not a mm-hmm. lot, not a lot, but there are a couple battles where he uses it. And uh, he's watching and, I mean, just phenomenal battle scenes um, up there among my favorites. I, I, I wouldn't know how to classify that, but uh, whenever whenever he starts acting, it's it's almost like an exclamation point to an already awesome fight because these guys are the pros uh, it's exciting watching them, but then it's like, okay, let's see this guy, the scribe, see how he uses his crossbow. And so, uh, since Tim mentioned the battle scenes, um, I have this quote from Reddit from a reader uh, on Reddit. The person is uh, Mr. Uh, Noyes or something like that, N O Y E S. Yeah. But um, this person just up and made a post the other day, um, basically just really praising your book. And I loved this you know, what he was saying about it. So, uh, I was actually going to read part of it. Um, so let's see, he's talking about the, the battles, uh, platoon strength engagements. Uh, he says, these battles leave me impressed, seriously impressed. They're not quote, epic impressive, like Sanderson's gloriously over the top fights or edge of your seat. Impressive. Like Malazan's duel of the fates with armies clashing and mountains shattering battles. Salyard's battles are gritty, realistic, impressive, reminding me somewhat of K.J. Parker as to how well-crafted they are. There are different objectives to be reached. There are different setups, different tactics. Sometimes things do go wrong, but not in an exaggerated way, such as, oops, the demigod has entered the battle. I guess you you don't do that. Uh, Just small things that can change circumstances in small, annoying, or even critical ways, which, again, reminds me of K.J. Parker. Um, And uh, he says, uh, also a big, big, big plus, there are no disposable mooks. There are engagements between professionals, and it feels like it. There are no stupid mistakes to exploit, no comically incompetent officers. And as another bonus, armor works. So one hit kills against armored units are rare, and not every hit that incapacitates the victim kills it. Uh, Seriously, that's some good stuff. He says I could go on and on about other aspects of the book. Uh, like having finally found a, quote, mystery box storyline that is not contrived or tedious or impeding flow of the story. But he says I'll leave that for another fan dance. So, um I, so that was cool, and um, Tim obviously agrees. You know, as far as the battles being really well, well written. Um, did how uh, how how much did you work on those? Did you do some research? Did you, you know, what kind of process did you have to, you know, work on that? Well, thanks, thanks for saying that. Um, I battles are, are especially in that level of you know medieval kind of era battles. But really, any battles throughout history. I've, I've always um, been fascinated by them, and I've definitely done a lot of research and, and reading about them. And and you know, like Tyson says, everyone's got a good plan until you get punched in the nose. And it's uh, that that could apply to almost any battle in history. And it's um, hmm. you know, even even when you've got a great general and you've got a good strategy and you've got tactics, you, you know, you've got professionals that are trained and and willing to carry it out and meet the objectives, all the rest of it. It's as good as you can plot something out almost without fail, it's never going to quite go according to plan. It's chaos, and it's controlled chaos, hopefully, but it's still chaos. And um, so I think that's one thing that I, I really, 
it's difficult to capture because, you know, on the one hand, I mean, I, I've read battles before fight sequences and books where it's really confusing and you have, you know, you lose track of who's where and what's happening. And it's, it's really difficult, I think, to pull off well, because on the one hand, it is chaos, but on the other, as the writer, you've got to pick and choose which things to, to kind of uh, focus on that can at least draw the reader in so that they can see what's happening and see the engagement and see how, how these two platoons or armies or whatever it might be, just single combatants, are, are clashing and, and to really kind of feel it and, and hear it and make it visceral. And so that's something I really have always, um, well, in both books especially, really focused on. And I, I think Bernard Cornwell is a really great inspiration. I don't know if you've ever read him, but he's um, mm-hmm. historical fiction, and his battles are amazing because they are really well-researched. You can tell no matter what era he's writing about, whether it's Napoleonic or or back in you know pre-Roman era in, in Britain or whatever it might be, he researches the heck out of it. And it's that's another thing I think some writers really struggle with, me too, is how much of those kinds of details do you uh, include? Um, the things about what armor and, and weapons and tactics and all the rest of it. You want you want to draw the reader in, but at the same time, you don't want to overwhelm them or you don't want to be just showboating to say, hey, look, I researched all this, I know about battles. You want to have just enough, I think, to really uh, encourage the reader into the scene, but without hitting them over the head with everything. So I think that's a really tricky balance because obviously you want it to be fast-paced and you want it to be moving quickly and to feel, uh, you know, it's action. You want it to be really uh, a visceral uh, moment. And so I think not just deciding which, which details to include, but just, um, you know, the sentences that you use and, and the rhythm and the, um, the pacing, uh, it's all really important uh, to really make that happen. And I think in the second book, um, you know, I think it's, it's important to recognize, too, that even, even your readers who love battles and fights in, in books, if you have the same sort of thing repeated, uh, it gets it gets boring for anyone, and it gets to be um, just you know ad nauseum. Here's another battle; it's going to go just like the last one. So I think in each one, in this especially in Vale, because uh, there, there are more of them, I really tried to differentiate them and have, as uh, Mr. Noyes uh, said, just a kind of a different objective and different goals and different terrain and different whatever it might be. Something to um, make it different from the last one that you just read so that you're not thinking, okay, I know what to expect. It's predictable. I can anticipate what's going to happen next. I think making it completely unpredictable, even if it's well orchestrated in your head, it needs to feel um, chaotic and unpredictable for the reader. Uh, and so I think that's, that's kind of a, a fine line to walk, you know, where you, you, it's, it's a ballet or, or it's choreographed and it's orchestrated, but at the same time, it should feel like it's anything can happen. So, um, that, yeah, that's something I definitely tried to work on. And, and I think, again, because there are more battles, I think I did a better job in this book of um, kind of playing them off differently and doing different things with them. I'd like to get to our nightshade discussion, but uh, I, one of my favorite things about this book is the, the magic system based on the veil. And so I don't know, I mean, it's your call how much you want to go into that because it is – as you said, kind of close to the chest in the first book. What, what would you like to say about uh, Kilcoin's weapon and his sister, um, if anything at all? <laughs> oh, that's good. Good question. Um, hmm. Well, 
if anybody's read Scourge and is listening to this, they'll, they'll know that there, it's hinted at the different things, uh, the magic elements, uh, but again, they're sort of on the periphery. And you know that Killcoin has this cursed weapon, and that's not a real um, huge surprise, even if you haven't read the first book. You've probably read the back cover copy or you know saw on Amazon. I mean, that's mentioned everywhere. That that he has this cursed weapon, and but you don't really understand what what what's involved with the curse or exactly how it works, and you get glimpses of it as that first book goes by. As you go through Scourge, you get to see that it's it, it involves memories of of the men he's slain, and um, so you know that there's some some sort of memory magic at work there, but it's not really defined entirely. It's not spelled out, and in the second book, and this is where I'm really going to avoid spoilers, um, try to. There's a lot more included just in terms of what the memory magic is and where it comes from and how um, the history of it. And I think that's one thing that Archie gets to to learn a lot more about, and I won't tell you how, <laughs> um, but he, he gets to kind of dig his, uh, his hands into something and, and he figures out some things as they go and certainly learns a lot more about um, kind of the origins of this and, and how it is. Um, I'm treading carefully <laughs> how it is involved um, with the God Veil and there's still some mysteries left and I, I certainly left some things unsaid um, that you know you're going to learn more in, in book three for sure um, but I, I think that was something that I really wanted to try and do uh, in the second book was to to, to, give, to give more information about that and really spell it out and I know um, you know some some writers are fantastic about creating magic systems that are really innovative and, and really engaging and, and do really different things than the kind of the run of the mill and those are the kinds of um, system I guess might be the wrong word here but certainly I'll use it magic system that those are the ones that really that I love are the ones that really uh, pop because they're they're different from something you've read before and so without getting into the details too much that was something I was trying to really convey in this book is, um, and you can tell me if it worked or not, <laughs> um, was... Yeah, I loved uh, it. Okay, awesome. <laughs> so, really wanted some magic that stood out sort of from your, uh, something most readers might be familiar with. And I don't know that it's, you know, perfectly innovative. I'm sure there's other things out there that it might echo somewhere, but I at least tried to give it a different, a different flash, a different flair. So... Very good. So we just had Michael J. Martinez on the show last week, uh, author of the Daedalus Incident and the Enceladus Crisis. Um, so we also we kind of introduced the nightshade problem to our audience um, very briefly. Just mentioned that, but mostly I'm I'm just curious how the nightshade sale affected your writing and uh, your career mindset. It's your, it's your favorite question, Jeff. <laughs> it is. I love it. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> well, I'll say a few things real quick. First, I I'm always going to be grateful to Nightshade for picking me up and, and taking a chance on me because no matter what else happened, uh, they did publish my first book. Um, and yeah, there were problems and stuff behind the scenes, and I'm not going to get into all the details, but um, there certainly were issues with the, with the company. With the publishing house, but um, they they saw something in, in the book. They saw something that they thought was gonna, you know, was worth getting behind. And I will always respect and appreciate that. Um, 
so I'm always thankful that that they did take a chance and, and do that um, because otherwise I'm sure you would not be uh, I wouldn't be number 262 here. Um, <laughs> so that's that's the first thing, and the second is um, when when the word broke that that they were kind of tanking and going down the to- toilet, and um, you know lots there was tons of speculation about okay does that mean are they declaring bankruptcy? Um, this other publishing house sort of swept in and, and was interested, Skyhorse and Start, in acquiring the, the imprint or buying the rights to the books. Or There was just tons of, nobody knew what was going to happen. Nobody knew really what was on the table. And one of the really great things uh, that did happen while that was all going on, as crappy as it was, a bunch of the Nightshade authors all kind of got together on a forum and um, always were updating each other and encouraging each other. And it was a really nice, kind of um, camaraderie sort of thing that, you know, we were all in the same boat. And not everybody necessarily was going to agree to the terms uh, with the new publisher or wanted to. And so everyone had their own choice to make. But it was great that we all kind of stood together and shared information and shared pain. And, um, you know, it was um, it was like a support group. <laughs> it was really, it was nice to, to have each other, I think, in that moment and that we did all sort of bond. And um, so that was, there was about four months, though, and this is while I was writing Vale when this all happened, and I was probably midway through. And, yeah, there were a good four months when I, I had no idea what was going to happen. I thought the rights might get caught up in, in bankruptcy proceedings, and you never know what's going to happen there. It could take a year. It could take more. Um, you don't have to get the rights back, so you can't even self-publish the book. So I really didn't even know if the series was kind of dead in the water or not. I, I thought it very well could be. Um and so, yeah, and just in terms of how that affected me, I mean, I, I'm not going to lie, I, I might have tinkered with the book after that or during that four-month kind of period, but I really didn't work very hard on it because I thought, you know, if I write 60,000 words during this time and it turns out everything goes to hell and I, I'm, the series is done, I'm going to be mad. <laughs> I'm going to be really upset. And so I just sort of bided my time. I, I tweaked things here and worked on it and did a lot of research and did other things to kind of occupy my time. But basically it took like three months off writing, um, seriously writing anyway, daily writing, that sort of thing, and just kind of waited it out. And uh, as it turned out, uh, the deal went through, and Nightshade, or Skyhorse acquired the uh, the rights to a bunch of the Nightshade authors and uh, their, their work, and it's keeping the imprint alive of, of Nightshade, um, Skyhorses. So... It all worked out, and you know, lo and behold, I got book two out, and um, unless disaster strikes, <laughs> the rest of the series should be fine. And so, um, you know, I, I couldn't be more thrilled or happy uh, that it worked out. Um, you know, no publishing house is perfect, including the current one, and there's always going to be issues. And uh, I'm sure both of you have heard rumblings from probably other authors. You know, everyone complains about their publishing house, or not everyone, but a lot of people do, and. Um, it's traditional publishing isn't perfect. It's not a perfect model, but for me, um, because I've got three kids and because I've got a full-time job, I don't, I don't have time to do a lot of the marketing that, you know, a lot of the self-publishers do. I'm, I'm staggered and amazed that they have the time, or not the time, the energy to do it. And even if I didn't have a full-time job, I mean, it's, it's a lot of work doing self-publishing. And so, while that might be something I'll get into at some point right now for this series, I'm really glad, um, you know, that I have this publisher and that we're kind of going forward. So I'm, I couldn't be happier that it's working out. Feel free to just say, I don't really want to talk about this. Uh, cause there's really nothing you can, I, I don't know if there's anything you can say or not, but, um, 
as someone that is observing traditional publishing, self-publishing, I think it's kind of interesting that we have on the show today Moses, whose first book uh, is 99 cents, and um, your books are over ten dollars uh, for the ebook. Um, and I'm not saying they're not worth that or or more. Um, <laughs> uh, and I, I think that people should be buying these books. If you're going to buy a fantasy book, I think his should be on your list. I'm just curious, when you look at the price point, what do you think? Um, yeah, that's a toughie because on the one hand, yeah, I think the price point, especially for the e-books, um, are, are overpriced for you know a lot of the traditionally published authors. You see their stuff certainly not the only one uh, there are plenty of them out there uh that that you know people yeah that you especially if you're an a-lister you're you're brandon sanderson and everyone in the world knows you you could probably get away with that uh, you're still going to have your your audience and they're still going to flock to you and, and buy your books once you get you know to a certain point but i think for the the mid-listers the struggling art, uh, writers the ones that are fairly new um, that's a tough price point, you know, because obviously it's a competitive marketplace and there's a billion and one books out there anyone can buy. And if somebody's considering, um, you know, here's somebody who's got a book, an ebook out that's two ninety nine or ninety nine cents or four ninety nine even, whatever it might be, some something on the other end of the scale, versus yours it's ten ninety nine, and they've heard good reviews about both. Well, if they've got limited income, it kind of goes to figure they're probably going to spend it on the one that. Uh, all things being equal, that's cheaper. I mean, it just goes to, to figure. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think that obviously I don't have much control over that. Um, kind of in the situation I'm in, that's certainly one of the downsides to traditional publishing. You kind of uh, are at the whims of the powers that be, and you can you can lobby and you can um, ask questions, and certainly you, you can try and make things happen, but at the end of the day, a lot of it is out of your control, and that's certainly a downside. Um, and that being one of them is the price point. So, yeah, that, I'm I'm sure I'm not probably not the only one that's ever thought um, be nice if they could <laughs> lower it a bit. And that was one thing I was really happy about uh, when when Vail just uh, the ebook anyway, and and the book on Amazon, the hardcover when it came out last week, um, that they did a really nice sale of, of Scourge. Uh, you know, they did drop it to a dollar ninety nine, which is as low as it's ever been. On, on uh, Amazon, they did that uh, Kindle Daily deal, and et cetera. And, and while Amazon's got its own stuff going on, it was still really good to see that they had heard us. My agent and I had been lobbying for a long time that, at the very least, even if you can't keep the price point of the current one down, you've got to do a sale or something on the first one. I mean, it just—it's ridiculous not to. And so they listened to that and they—they they did it, and that was great. Uh, I was really happy to see that. But in general, yeah, I mean. The price points are what they are, and you just kind of have to roll roll with it. So, so you kind of mentioned before that it's not really you um, being a self-published author with all the marketing and stuff. Like, what is Nightshade doing for you? That because um, I hear you know people say, well, traditional publishing they don't do anything for their authors anyway. They ask you to market yourself. Um, what kind of things is is Nightshade doing for you that you couldn't have done? I mean, we've we've had that discussion before in the past, and you know, I think there. Generally, I, I remember some of these discussions, like when maybe Sean, maybe even Lou Anders was on the show, possibly. But just like um, that, a lot of things that happen are, and, and Jeff can speak to this, obviously. But you know, getting books out to reviewers, you know, that won't consider your book otherwise, and little 
things that happen behind the scenes or, or at bookstores maybe or things like that. Obviously, that's what we hope. We hope that they're going to talk to the bookstores and get our books in the, in the right places, you know, and as many stores as we want. But um, I'll, I'll let Jeff finish that one then. Yeah, but no, that that's absolutely right. I mean, I think some of it is so is behind the scenes, and you don't hear about it or even think about it. And it's a, it's the sort of thing you just mentioned. Like, uh, for instance, um, Scourge of the Betrayer, if it had been published, self-published, I probably, I mean, not to say that nobody self-published authors get foreign rights deals, but it's a lot tougher. You know, that you're if you have an agent yep. or you're just operating solo to try and get somebody interested. Again, there are a billion books out there, and so. A foreign publisher is more than likely going to pick one that's either sold through the roof, uh, if it's self-published, maybe, but more often than not, I think they gravitate to the ones that are traditionally published. That just seems to happen that way. Not not, hard, not a hard and fast rule, but it seems to. Uh, so that sort of thing, getting it in Barnes & Noble, getting it in the bookstores, um, getting it reviewed, as you said. Um, plenty of reviewers, because they're overwhelmed and they have so many to look at uh, on their plate, yeah, they might make an effort to kind of do the old pro bono, I'll look at... Uh, um, a self-published author, but uh, and some of them are really good about that. But a lot of them, you know, they just don't have the time. They're, they've got day jobs too, or they've got other commitments. And so, um, you know, if they've got a limited time to review books, more than likely they'll pick the ones that they think are going to have the biggest audience and be out there and kind of, um, you know, and those tend to be the self-published or the uh, traditionally published ones. And so, uh, those sorts of things that are sort of subtle, I think, in a way, and just in terms of, uh, and not all publishers are, are created equal here, but, you know, having it proofread, having it, um, uh, an editor respond, another set of eyes that can give you input. Um, obviously, you can get those things on your own if you're self-published. Plenty of people do. Uh, I'm not, and I should back up. I'm not suggesting self-published, is, or I'm sorry, traditionally published is better. I'm simply saying for me right now, I'm, I am glad the series is going forward with the traditional publisher. But... I think there's pros and cons, obviously, to either model. Um, and there are plenty of authors, um, like Michael Sullivan, who do both. Um, and so I think it often is kind of erupt into a kind of a, a big battle line where people jump on one side or the other and they're really uh, vehement about it and, and kind of zealous, you know, you've got to do it this way, you've got to do it, do it that way. I think everybody's different. And for me, um, with kind of my circumstances, I, I just don't have – I've got a I've barely have enough time to write, to be honest, uh, just to find time to write and the energy, that's difficult enough. So doing all the extra stuff, um, I, it's just not in the cards for me right now. But yeah, no, I know I, that, I, uh, Jonathan Wood, you know, who was another nightshade author, he, that's the experience that he had. Like he, he tried self-publishing his second book and you know, he'll, he'll tell you, you know, it's just, it takes time that he, he didn't have for that. It does. And you know, it's, it's, so that's one thing. It's nice to not have to wear every hat <laughs> and yep. to just worry about writing first and foremost. And then, yeah, you do have, it's, you're, you're right, Tim, you do have to do some marketing on your own, uh, no matter who you're published by, unless you happen to be, you know, one of their A-listers that maybe gets a little extra push, but by and large, yeah, you do have to do some of it on your own to try and get stuff out there and to get the word out and generate some buzz, whatever it is. You absolutely do, and it's it's not 1950. That's <laughs> you're going to have to do that now. Um, but I think Nightshade for our Skyhorse, I should say, with the Nightshade imprint, they they do try and contact some, you know, like Kirkus or Locus or some of the bigger places. Uh, they can try and get review copies out there. They try and send it to the to reviewers that um, 
you wouldn't ordinarily hit on your own or have good success trying to hit, uh, all those things that they're, they they send those copies out. I don't have to do it. Um, so, I mean, I think there's a lot of small things they do, and it adds up. Um, so I, I think that's, for me, it, it works out right. It works out just fine. I really like dealing with Nightshade books um, just as a reviewer experience. And my questions were, I don't know if my tone was displayed the right way, but just kind of, you know, people that are looking at this, the scope of traditional publishing, self-publishing, just kind of getting the idea of why you chose Nightshade and why you like them. That was kind of my, my mindset for those questions. Oh, well, the, I can answer that one really quickly. Um, I mean, the thing that I really liked about Nightshade, and I'm hoping Skyhorse and Stark can, can keep doing this and maintain it, is they've always, or they were always known as kind of being a champion for really interesting books, books that are sort of don't maybe fit into um, molds very easily and readily, and that they do different things and that they kind of challenge a little bit and they might cross genres or they might be the sort of book that, you know, a bigger publisher would have passed on, um, that they, they take risks or did take risks. And I'm, again, hopeful that they'll kind of continue that tradition. But that's one. That's the one reason I like them is that I knew Scourge and the whole idea of the series, as you said, Moses. It is sort of ambitious, and and definitely I've, I've experienced this just reading reviews. It didn't work for everybody in the first book, uh, the the way I chose to kind of write the story, and I kind of knew that it wouldn't. I mean, it's it was sort of a given that it was um, a little bit outside the box, and uh, there was some risk involved in that, and and I don't. You know, I got some nibbles from other publishers, and um, there was certainly an editor at another house that was really interested, and it didn't quite end up working out, and I was okay because I knew, you know, Sky, uh, Nightshade, they, um, uh, that was right up there, right in their wheelhouse. That was the sort of book that I was pretty confident that they would be willing to take a risk on, and they did. So that was what really drew them, drew me to them. Okay. Jeff, was there anything else you wanted to mention before we take off? Um, I just thanks for uh, for inviting me. It was really a lot of fun. Um, I hope I didn't get too long winded on you. <laughs> oh no, um, you aren't looking at your watches. Hopefully, um, no, no, so, no. So yeah, thanks. It was it's been good. You want to check out Jeff? It's jeffsalyards.com. S a l y a r d s, and uh, we'll have links to his books in the show notes and um, his blog, the the dialogue. Um, blog post that he made and uh go ahead and check out his books scourge of the betrayer and veil of the deserters thanks for coming on guys thank you bye everybody bye